The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. I always tell him, I got humble enough to say that I'm in trouble here. And if I don't rectify it, I'm going to die. It's as simple as that. As they say, the old saying, jail's institution and death. That's where it leads if you're a true alcoholic or addict. Uh, eventually, it catches up to you. When your nickname is Mr. Devil, sometimes that can have a negative connotation, but not for Ken Danico, a man who witnessed the Colorado Rockies hockey team move east and become the New Jersey Devils, became the man which represented them best and thus earned the moniker Mr. Devil. From humble beginnings of a franchise without a name, you know, the Rocky Mountains stopped just short of the East Rutherford border, to four Stanley Cup final appearances and three championships, he played with a ferocity symbolic of the era, pummeling foes without his front teeth. His number three is retired by the organization, and now he's an analyst on Devil's Broadcasts on MSG. Let's talk about how the three cups were special, but that the one that got away still stings. How a young Devils team pushed fast forward and beat the Rangers in the postseason this year, and how it feels to eat without those teeth. Plus, his battle with alcoholism which Ken describes as, if I didn't rectify it, I would have died. Play hard, play harder could have been his motto. This is Ken Danico's New York accent. Ken, how are you? I'm very good. Good to be on with you. And uh, yeah, when you mentioned in the four Stanley Cup finals, I am still very disappointed uh, that it wasn't 4-0. I know some people say that's getting greedy, but uh, when you're up three games to two in game six in your building, and we could have been back-to-back champions at the time, that was disappointing, believe me, but Colorado was a heck of a team, so it is what it is, but uh, that was that was tough, but you always want to win, that's for sure, regardless if you've won it before. That speaks to your competitiveness, and I've spoken to some athletes who say the losses in championship games and Super Bowls, World Series, actually stick with you more than winning World Series or Super Bowls or Stanley Cup Finals. Is that true? Do you remember the loss to Colorado more than you remember the three wins that you had? Well, I mean, I don't know if you remember it more, but it stings because, like I said, uh, that would have been back-to-back and so tough to do in any sport, but in particular in the National Hockey League with the competitive balance, but uh, even more so today, obviously, with every year different teams uh, in the finals, uh, uh, except for the Tampa Bay Lightning, who had a nice little run there three years three years in a row winning two. But they probably feel the same way after going for a three-peat and losing to the Avalanche. But it, it stings because, I mean, you get so close and – the uh, the ultimate goal is to to win, to win the Stanley Cup, to win the championship with a group of guys you you went through a long year with, and and especially like I had mentioned off the top, uh, to be up three games to two in Game Six in our building, to close it out, and we didn't get it done, and then we lost in Game Seven. So yeah, you always remember it because uh, we had such a special group, and you know. Uh, at the end of it, it would have been three Stanley Cup championships in four years, and that would have been pretty special. But I'm not complaining. We got it done three times, and I was very grateful and fortunate and thankful to be on on those three championship teams with just a great, great group of guys. 
this year when the Devils took out the Rangers in the first round of the playoffs, did it bring back some of the old some of the old grit, some of the old angst that you guys had between you and the Rangers? Well, I've told many people and anybody that was around me when we were calling the games as well. I mean, I was as excited about that series as when I played. Uh, I mean, obviously being in New Jersey as long as I have, 40 years now, you, you, you just want their success. And I've been through the tough years like they've been through and the ups and downs you go through in a career. And and obviously the uh, the great year they had this season in the regular, in the regular season and then uh, you know, playing your arch rival in the first round, and obviously uh, it's a little more ramped up, a little more special. Rivalries to me is always what it's about, and that's what uh, you want to see. You want both teams to be good, and in our area, in fact, when we saw all three locals, the Islanders, Devils, and Rangers make the playoffs this year, I didn't think I'd see that in my lifetime again. <laughs> so I was pretty excited because it puts hockey on the map and to see all three teams in there, and obviously with the Devils beating the Rangers in what was a classic, exciting seven-game series. Uh, needless to say, I was pretty pumped, no question about it. And disappointed when they lost to Carolina, but that's all part of the learning curve and experience for a young group that made great strides this year. You guys created a class organization, a model organization. As you said, you were in three cup finals in four years. Ultimately, you won three cups along the way. Every year, you guys were competitive, but that must have seemed like a total reach when you first got to New Jersey, even before they were named the Devils when they had moved from Colorado. Take me back to the early days and what it felt like back in the wilderness when the when when the Devils had just arrived in the middle of of this tri-state area. Well, first off, for for any young kid growing up, uh, and I grew up in Western Canada where hockey. It was a religion, as we like to say, up there. You didn't skate. You didn't go out on the frozen ponds or outdoor ice rinks. You had nothing to do, and I was no different. Uh, I had a passion and a heart for the game of hockey and uh, belief from the age of seven told my mother ten times a day, I'm going to play in the National Hockey League. And She didn't really believe me. She used to pacify me. She thought I was dreaming a little big, I think, at the time because she understood how difficult that may be to fulfill that dream, but uh, when I got that call in 82, the original year, uh, New Jersey, the Devils moved from Colorado, and there wasn't a team named you're right at the time. Uh, I didn't know where New Jersey was. I, I looked at my mother and asked, uh, not a word of a lie, I said, where's New Jersey, Mom? I had no clue, and, but it didn't matter where it was. I would have ran the 2,000 miles or so just to get that chance, to get that opportunity to fulfill my dream, and Getting drafted was the first step, and yeah, it was in New Jersey. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I knew they weren't very good. I know that because they came from Colorado, and the team had struggled, obviously. It had been moved a couple of occasions from Kansas City and Colorado and then to New Jersey when uh, the late, great Dr. Mullen, who I I uh, just uh, loved the man and, and became a second father to me, brought the team to New Jersey. And yeah, we had a lot of work to do to put the team on the map, but uh, I was one of those guys just grateful to be drafted and wanted to be part of the solution. And we were a bad team for the first five years or so, but uh, I didn't want to go anywhere else. This was the team that gave me my chance. This was the team that I wanted to be part of the solution and was hoping, and I would tell anybody within an ear, within an earshot that we are going to become something someday. <laughs> and I used to tell the star ledger that in the Jersey paper as well. And I think people used to laugh at me every once in a while, but uh, 
I was just hoping I was going to be part of it when it turned because I just had a belief in, in, inside that uh, we are going to be good one day. So when you're talking about the the primitive early days of the Devils, then fast forward to 1995, when you're hoisting the cup for the first time and the organization is a champion for the first time, did you flash back to those early days? Well, no question about it. I mean, just from the standpoint... Uh, it made it that much more gratifying to accomplish something with a group of guys that uh, we went through a lot of lean years. And I, I in particular say Bruce driver and Johnny McLean, who we had been together for 10 plus years with the organization and went through those lean years in the early eighties, mid eighties. And uh, we made a point of going to the New Jersey Nets locker room, who we shared with the, the NBA basketball and just taking a, a picture of the three of us, uh, it meant a whole lot, and obviously uh, just the group of guys we had. I mean, it was fantastic, and we traded a lot of great players along the way to build the team that you want, and obviously Lou Lamorello, our general manager, being the architect and really turning the franchise around as far as uh, really showing us what it took to win and him building the team that you got to trade good players uh, to get good players and, and build the team in the mold that he wanted, and obviously uh, – I think for 10 plus years, like I was mentioning, Johnny Mack and Bruce Driver, the three of us were the the last men standing, I guess you would say, from those really lean, tough years. And uh, it was pretty darn special to hoist that Stanley Cup. And you always believe you're going to as a player and have a chance. And we were starting to get better. And we made the playoffs for the first time in 1988 and went on a heck of a run. You know, won a couple of rounds, uh, just got in the playoffs last game of the season, and then ended up losing to Boston in seven games, so I'm going, we're close. Should be the next couple of years that we're in a final or going to win, and it took seven more years. So again, <laughs> not easy to win uh, in any sport, and certainly in the National Hockey League, but uh, finally seven years later after our first playoff appearance and uh, what seemed to be the team turning the corner from 1988, uh, uh, yeah, ups and downs again until 95, but uh, what a moment, and certainly to sweep the Detroit Red Wings in the finals. Uh, the best team in the National Hockey League during the season. And not many people in the media gave us much of a chance, but uh, we were quietly confident because we had just come so close in 94 and felt we were going to win the Cup and had that epic series against our rivals, the Rangers, uh, who went on to win the Stanley Cup. So we were just waiting to turn that switch on. We wanted just to get the playoffs, didn't matter how. We weren't that good that year, really, uh, but we knew once the playoffs came, uh, we we had some unfinished business to do, and, and we certainly did that. Did you want to face the Rangers as revenge for 94 because you would have lined up with them in the conference final, except the Flyers took out the Rangers. They swept them in the second round. Yeah, I look. When you're in the playoffs, you don't pick your poison. You play who's ever in front of you and get prepared for that team. So, I mean – it was about winning a Stanley Cup. It was Stanley Cup or bust for us in our mindset. People kind of had forgot about us from the year before in the in the hockey media in the world because we kind of sauntered into the playoffs in 95. Uh, you know, I think we were the fifth seed and just kind of had an up, up and down year. It was a shortened season, but it was all about the playoffs and we were a very confident, veteran-laden group. So whoever was in front of us, we were gonna, uh, going to – you know, hopefully beat in, in, like I said, uh, 
finish some business that we we couldn't quite take care of in what was an epic series in the Eastern Conference Finals the year before against the Rangers. But the Philadelphia Flyers and us uh, were on a collision course for the next handful of years as we kind of became the two two top teams in the East that, uh, for all intents and purposes, were going to be facing each other if we're going to go to the Stanley Cup Final. And that materialized twice, obviously, in 95 and uh, also in 2000 where we came back from a 3-1 deficit. So, like I said, uh, in a roundabout way, it's whoever you face. If it was the Rangers, yeah, uh, we would have had the revenge factor on our mind, but uh, it didn't turn out that way. And and uh, we had an excellent Philadelphia Flyer team to try to get through, which we did. You were a hard-hitting guy. You played with a lot of hard-hitting teammates. There was a blue-collar mentality to the Devils. And I wonder if that also, it came from clearly the region, the state, maybe overlooked by some New Yorkers in the in the shadow of the glitz and glamour of Manhattan. But also the arena seemed to, you know, it seemed to reflect that right off of the Jersey Turnpike. And you have trucks going by, exit 16W. And the arena itself was kind of bare bones. Did you guys take pride in the fact that it wasn't a fancy, glitzy place that you played and it kind of reflected the type of team you had? Well, look, it is what it is. I mean, we were, again, we wanted to put hockey on the map in New Jersey, and uh, I, I took a lot of pride, certainly, about the Jersey name in front of it. We're New Jersey, New York. Um, and, again, all it was is about winning for us with the Stevens and the Nita Myers and the Randy McKays and all leaks. Uh, we just had such a group of guys that knew how good we were and how good we could be, and, and it was going to take a lot to obviously win a championship. So, if we were the little brothers, call it what you want. It didn't matter to us. It was all about winning and, and making the state proud and making our fans proud. And uh, I hadn't heard a, a louder building than the Brendan Byrne at the time. And then 19,000 plus, I mean, rocking, uh, certainly when we were able to hoist the Stanley Cup in game four in our own building. So uh, it was ruckus. It was uh, as good an atmosphere as I've ever seen. And we loved it. So, I, again, I go back to winning. All we cared about was winning, and that was the mentality we had. We had a lunch pal kind of group, a lot of talent, a lot of underrated talent because it was about the logo on the front. I know it's cliche, but our guys didn't care who scored. We didn't care who did what. It was all about having an impact every night for your team, and, and that was the mentality, and that, that's the only way you can win. And I still believe in that today, regardless how the game's evolved and the skill and uh, things have gone in a little different direction, maybe not as intimidating or physical, but come playoff time, it's pretty physical, just maybe not as much fighting. Our era was our era, but it was, uh, we could play it any way you wanted it. And if I look at our 95 team and our 2000 team, all of the Stanley Cup teams, we were built just like the Vegas Golden Knights. We were big, we were strong, we were deep. We didn't rely on one line. We relied on four lines. I mean, Randy McKay, fourth liner of the crash line, which was so instrumental to us winning in 95, had eight goals. Bobby Holik, I think, had double-digit points. Uh, you know, Peluso did his thing physically and chipped in a little bit offensively, and that's the fourth line. So it was just everybody, and I'm a believer still today's game, and you're seeing it every day with the Vegas Golden Knights. Size, skill, depth not worrying about just having one line shut down and you're in trouble. Hey, that's, that's the way to have success. And I think that's why both teams that are in the finals have had some success 
the Panthers in Vegas. But Vegas reminds me a lot of my 95 team, a lot of my 2000 team, where their top scorer this year had 66 points. But you could go one through 10, and they're all bunched and packed together because everybody contributes. And and that just makes your team that much more dangerous. And those are the types of teams that I, I, I played on. When you played, you you infamously had your teeth, your front teeth knocked out, and it was a, a symbol of the tough style that you played with and the rough and tumble style that the Devils played with in general. How how do you eat when you got no front teeth? Nobody knows usually how how this feels, how the sensation is, but what what is that like? Well, look, I had teeth that would flip in and out uh uh after games and before games, obviously, because you didn't want them in while you're playing. And I actually used to forget them on the road every once in a while. And trainers <laughs> from Chicago or Minnesota or wherever it was would always be calling our trainers and say, Danico left his teeth again. We'll ship them overnight. And I go, oh, damn, I because we'd always be rushing back to cities. Look, that was part of it for me. If blood, sweat, tears, and teeth, I said, uh, I used to say and still stay to say today, uh, is what it took uh, for me to be part of a championship team. And uh, that's not a bad sacrifice, in my opinion. Uh, when it was all said and done, I was missing 13 teeth. And uh, unofficial, official record, I would say, <laughs> for a guy that uh, had to get 13 implants after my career. And the implants are much nicer than my original teeth anyway. But how did you eat? I, I, difficult. My teeth would get stuck in in certain meats my teeth would get stuck everywhere i'd have to pull them out put them in so yeah it was a it was a pain it was a pain in the ass no question about it um and like i said i used to leave them all over and a guy that loved corn on the cob i was a corn on the cob guy and i still would attempt to eat corn on the cob and it was not easy with partials going in and out of your mouth and then pulling out uh, during the time I was eating corn, so uh, but true story. That's all, all of uh, uh, what it was about back then. And like I said, uh, I'd sacrifice those teeth every day for what uh, we were able to accomplish as a team. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, you're a gamer. It doesn't surprise me that you would fight through adversity to eat your corn on the cob. That does not. <laughs> that does not surprise me. It does not I surprise me. I, I didn't score much, and I understood that. I was a defensive defenseman who had to protect teammates, play tough hockey, and Lou Lamorello, everybody knows the story, had sat me down, uh, you know, his first year there and made sure I understood what my role was. He likened his team to an orchestra, and he said, there's pianists, there's violinists, and there's drummers. And what category do you fall in there, Kenny, when I was getting a little power play time because driver was injured and, I always wanted to do more. Everybody wanted to do more. We could do it in junior, but Lou made sure I understood. I was uh, not the uh, sharpest tool in the shed, I would say, back then, but I took it to heart. I knew what he meant. He, I was a drummer, and he said, if you master that role, you're going to play a long time in this league, and you're going to be a big part of this team. If I want to be a jack-of-all-trades, master or none, I'll be out of the league in five years. So. I really took it to heart. It was the best advice I'd ever had as a young kid. It was hard to hear, hard to take, because we, we always wanted to do more. He didn't care if I scored a goal, didn't care what uh, I had offensively. If you chipped in once in a while, great. That was a bonus. But he made sure that in order for me to be part of the team and, and, and have success with this team and have an impact, I had to do my job. That was blocking 
pucks that was losing teeth by getting in a scrap of protecting the teammate, stopping a goal at all costs. I was kind of like an offensive lineman, he used to say. He says, offensive linemen don't score touchdowns, so stop thinking about offense. If that <laughs> happens to materialize once in a blue moon, great. You get excited about it, but that's not what you're here for. You were such a tough individual and everybody knew you as such, but you did battle with alcoholism during your career and you were open about that in interviews following your detox and rehab. And you once said it was way scarier to enter rehab than it was to be punched in the head. And for most (laughs) people, that seems crazy, but that speaks to how difficult it is to sometimes face your demons. I'm sure there are people that come to you to this day and thank you for being public. Maybe they've went through the same thing. But why is that so scary from a guy that we would look at on the outside and say, that guy's got no fear in anything. We see him on the ice all the time. Well, it's because when something has a hold of you, I mean, we, we believe we're invincible because of that toughness, because of that mentality to overcome anything. And, and obviously the hardest thing to do a lot of the times with anything and certainly with addiction or alcoholism, whatever, maybe you can plug in many different uh, forms of addiction. Uh, it's all relative to me because you, it's all about overcoming and asking for help and to have the humility and, um, you know, just the, the wherewithal to say, this has got me beat. I need help was the most difficult thing. And, and obviously my career meant everything to me. The devils meant everything to me. They were, they're my team. I've been there from day one. I love the organization. I love the team. And and to be able to have to admit that uh, – and, and by the way, the first time I went away public was 97. I was one of, I think I was the first player ever in the National Hockey League. Not the first player to enter the program because it was – a you didn't have to go public. I mean, there was about four or five guys prior to me, but they never went away public. I went away during the year, and I was playing well. And things were going pretty good, and – uh I wasn't happy and I was, you know, just battling within myself and knew there was a problem. Uh, I knew it was going to take a lot more than just uh, waiting till the end of the season. And fortunately for me, the devils and how long I'd been there, they didn't treat me like a piece of meat. They treated me like family and said, Kenny, you go take care of what you have to, and we're going to help you. Uh, you, you know, when you get back, uh, uh, we'll be waiting. You know what I mean? And that in itself was probably the biggest, um, you know, the biggest help for me from the standpoint that I go, uh, I'm walking away from something that I love dearly, the team playing uh, to take care of something that's more important for the rest of my life. And that was alcoholism. And and I and still at the time, I didn't know if completely I wasn't. And by the way, I'll, I'll correct you. I never liked through detox once and the rehabs I went through because I went to more than one because it's there's very rarely oh, wow. time winter. Um, but they were amazed by it. And that's the tolerance my body had. I never went through. Wow. Detox. I would stop because I was a disciplined guy and my career was so important. So I would stop for three months, six months, or before I got to rehab, I, I wouldn't drink, you know, a few days because I, I was scared enough to know I needed help that I would, curb it and things like that but again it's all relative whether you drank every day whether you drank at home whether i was a nightlife guy I, the the engine was always going um so i was more of a binger but uh play hard party hard as they said and a, in particular back in those days but 
you know, probably the most courage I've ever had is to, to admit I had a problem and to continue to work at it. And, you know, it took some time even after my career, but uh, coming up this August, 12 years sober and, you know, haven't looked back since then. And, and I'm grateful for that. I'm lucky uh, because uh, if you don't have a little humility and a spiritual awakening, I like to say it's going to be tough. And uh, it took me a long time. It, I always joke, it took me 30 years to get 12 years of straight everyday sobriety one day at a time, as they say. And yes, I'll leave it at this. The greatest satisfaction and as gratifying as winning the Stanley Cup is when I can help one other person. If I say one word or one thing or one sentence that helps them because alcohol, drugs, eating, whatever, maybe it's an addiction. And P, you know, if I had an illness that whether it was cancer, whether it was anything that was inflicted upon you, would I do the things necessary at all costs to save me? Of course I would. But when it's addiction, we don't look at it that way. Or a lot of people don't anyway, because well, you, why do you drink? It's, you know, just put it down. It's not good for it. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And that's why I think it makes it a little more difficult in a roundabout way to, to understand that. Yeah, I was, I got humble enough to say, I could die. I could, you know, I looked, I played the tape through now and understood down the road. If I don't get this, get this right, my life's going to be shortened and I may hurt myself or somebody else. And I didn't want that to happen. And, uh, boy, it took a lot, but, uh, uh, I got a lot of emails, a lot of letters, even during my career. And even when I relapsed and everything, you know, I, you get guilty, but you know, gosh, these people are looking to me to help them. But, there was times where I relapsed and I couldn't. And then until I got solid sobriety after my career, uh, anytime you can get back a little bit and help one person, that's what they say, or one person in the room or one person out there. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful to say I've had many people on social media DM me or ask me, how'd you do it? Or former teammates that are struggling going, Ken, you are the wildest of wild. How did you do it? And I said, I have no magic formula. I have no magic potion. Do you, have, do you have the desire to stop drinking? If you do, call me every day. Reach out to me. I'm not going to hound you. I'm not going to judge you uh, because you got to find your own path. And there's no, like I said, no magic formula how I did it. How I did it was, uh, I always tell them, I got humble enough to say that I'm in trouble here. And if I don't rectify it, I'm going to die. That's it's, it's simple as that. As they say, the old saying, jail's institution in depth. That's where it leads. If you're a true alcoholic or addict, uh, eventually it catches up to you. And fortunately and for me, and I praise God that uh, I got it right. And uh, one day at a time, and I haven't had a desire to drink in 12 years coming August 9th. And, and like I said, I, I get old teammates calling me and, and I'm like, wow, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? But I'm grateful they can call me and ask me anything, anytime. And I said, I'm there for you. But you have to have a desire to stop. If you don't, if you're on the fence, you got to do more exploring. Come back to me, and I hope you come back to me in one piece because if you think you got a problem, you probably do. Hmm. Well, congratulations on sobriety. That's a really powerful message, and I'm glad you corrected me on detox versus what you had done before because that is an important delineation about most you. Do, by the way, most do. And the rehabs when I was being admitted, I always said, we 
we're sending you detox and I, they check me out and they go, God, you really don't. You're not, you don't need detox. I just need you to go right into the program. Wow. So wow. it doesn't matter one way or the other. I just bring that up because it's kind of uh, uh, funny in a way where they go, 90% of our patients need detox. Didn't make me any less of an alcoholic. <laughs> but it, it does speak to your personality and, and what you were going through. Like you said, you were disciplined enough to take yourself away from alcohol, but you still knew in the back of your mind you had to, you had to defeat it somehow. Before I let it go, I want to go to your final shift in 03, Game 7, Stanley Cup Final. You had known that you were probably going to retire that offseason. It's Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final. You're going to hoist the Stanley Cup. And what does it feel like when you take the ice for the final shift? Oh, man. I mean, I could go on and on with this story, and I've told it many times. And look, you get older. I was 39 years old. I played 20 years for the Devils along those lines or 20 years in the organization. So as a competitor, it's not easy. I play every playoff game up till then, as everybody knows, in Devils history. I knew going into the playoffs that I may be in and out of the lineup because Lou had already prepared me a little bit. And I was, you know, going to make scratch and claw to make sure I'm not out. And I think I played, I don't know, the first 12 or so games of the playoffs, something like that. I give or take, and maybe not that many, maybe a handful. I'd played 175 straight and then I was going to get a healthy, I was a healthy scratch in the second round against the Boston Bruins. And of course it's disappointing. And I didn't always see eye to eye with the late great Pat Burns. And that happens with coaches. And that's just because we were competitors. And, and obviously uh, I, I was a healthy scratch in Boston. Then I got back and then I was out and look, I always said it takes 25, 26, 27 guys. If you're going to win a Stanley cup, every guy's going to have a moment where they're part of it. And that means you have depth, but yes, I understood where I was because we had some younger guys in Trevodoski and other defensemen and Richard Schmelich they traded for that may be in for me at times and, uh, you know, depending on matchups and depending on what Pat Burns thought. But I wasn't happy. We battled for sure. Um, but I just wanted to win as bad as anybody. But, yeah, you, you, you take it to heart, obviously. And I know the fans wanted me in. The media even was kind of on my side. So Pat being a tough guy as well, just like me, I didn't feel he handled it very well with the press, and that's what bothered me most at the time. And I went to Lou and said, Lou, you can scratch me, and I used explicitives, but I said, take the high road. And he says, I'll talk to him. I'll make sure I talk to him. You know, I said, been here a long time. All I want is a little an ounce of respect. He's got tough decisions to make. I expect that. And uh, certainly it was, it was in and out. And then by – I played game six and seven against Ottawa, who was the best team in the National League. They won the President's Trophy. They were a great team. I played six and seven. We we somehow beat them, and we're going to the finals. So I anticipate I'm going to start the finals. I just played in, against the best team in game six and seven. Then he informs me I'm not going to be in, in game one. And now I'm like, Jesus, I, I, you know, I was disappointed for sure. But I was more at the stage where I go, okay. Just do whatever it takes and be ready. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter. You, you, you've been part of this a long time. Figure it out. And just work hard because they may need you. Sure enough, we win the first two, and I'm not going to get in. We lose the next two, so I think maybe I'm going to get to add on uh, the Ducks we played that year, and, and I think maybe I'm going to get in game five. And I was really working hard to stay ready. 
don't get the call for game five and was a little disappointed, but, uh, but I made sure, you know, Trevor Doss, he was in for me and I developed a great relationship with him. And I, I'd go to him and say, Trevor, if you see me walking around here, grumpy, I mean, and, and angry, that's because I'm a competitor. This isn't on you. You go do your thing, man. We need you. You know. So I was about winning. Uh, yeah, you're always, like I said, disappointed. And, and, I, and I think I gave him a little relief because I know at times he was feeling even a little guilty of being in for me, the longest tenure devil. And I said, you just go do your thing, man. I just want to win. And that's just me. I'm just angry and grumpy because <laughs> I'm a competitor. But let's just win. So I don't get in five. We win, so obviously I'm not going to get in six, which is is back in Anaheim. We lose in Anaheim uh, in game six and fly right back. Only one day in between, long west to east coast trip. I think it was a Wednesday. Our last game seven was a Friday. We we don't leave till the next morning because we wanted to be rested, no red eye. Get in about 6 p.m. We're staying at the hotel in Jersey to get a team dinner, get ready for game seven, and... Pat Burns grabs me after the bus arrived from the airport at, at the hotel and grabs me and says, Kenny, I want to talk to you. Pulls me aside and he says, you're in tomorrow night. Don't tell anybody. And he walked away from me. Not a not another word. I'm shaking my head. I'm kind of in tears. I'm like stunned. I'm in stunned disbelief going, now I think he's making the wrong decision. Now I think, what is going through this guy's mind? He's absolutely certifiably insane. I hadn't played in two weeks. It's one game, winner take all. I just wanted to win. I wanted to win for guys that had never won a Stanley Cup and and get to experience it. Um, I didn't need to be in anymore. But sure enough, he told me, and I I called my dear friend in Jersey for 25 years, called my family and said, you're not going to bleep and believe this. My buddy right away goes, you're in tomorrow night. I go, how the hell would you know? Because I certainly didn't expect this. I thought I thought the coach, uh, coach Burns was insane. I'm going, and now I didn't think he was making the right decision because, again, I wanted to win and I hadn't played in a while. I didn't want to be that guy that maybe made a mistake because of Russ and uh, was going to maybe cost us a, a close game. And my buddy said, Kenny, you played over 1,400 games this league, playoffs, regular season. He had to calm me down because I felt like a rookie. He says, like riding a bike, I think you're going to be okay. You've been through it, my man. <laughs> and he kind of, right there, I took a deep breath and said, yeah, you're right. I've got wow. a lot of hockey in this league. Yeah. And then it was sure enough when I wasn't a healthy scratch. Media didn't know till I was going on the ice. And they skipped my name in the healthy scratches. And I heard a roar from the dressing room from the fans because I had such a great rapport with the fans and obviously been there a long time. And they were... Uh, the ones who nicknamed me Mr. Devil, and I, I was honored with that after my career. But um, they'd heard, I heard a roar, and I'm going, oh, boy. They, you know, and then I walked out my first shift, uh, you know, and they all stood up and, and gave me a roaring ovation. And I was like, every time I touched the puck, and, uh, I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to play a lot, but I was just, just do my job, you know what I mean? And sure enough, every time I touch puck, I'm getting back to the bench, I'm telling, I'm telling myself, going, I wish they'd be quiet, shut up a little bit because I, you're making me nervous. But that was the love I had with the and relationship I had with all our wonderful Devils fans, and and uh, and they were pumped I was back in the lineup. And you know what? And then we end up winning, and Pat Burns puts me out the last shift because 
everybody knew, you know, I didn't know midway through the season, but I, I thought maybe I'd play one more year or try to. Everybody knew this was it for me. We were up three nothing. I, I, that's all my emotion was running through my mind and everything that, what a way to go out. This is it. We're going to win the Stanley Cup. And it's every athlete's dream. I still get goosebumps talking about it because I was just so grateful to my teammates and the organization and, and Pat Burns. You know, it was, it was a rocky relationship between the two of us. And that because we both, both just had a ton of competitiveness and just wanted to win. And you realize when your career is over that they have tough decisions to make, right, wrong, and different. It doesn't matter. They're making it for the best of the uh, uh, for the best decision for the team, what they think at the time. And so I respect that now. You don't while you're in it. You're in it. <laughs> I went to him after, and next day, next morning, I handed him a cigar. He likes cigars. I like celebratory cigars. I said, Pat, I know we had a rough go of it sometimes, but I said. I'm forever, forever indebted to you and so thankful, uh, you know, because this is it for me. I'm retiring. There's no questions. I have nothing else to fulfill. Uh, I'm going out on top. And you put me back in there and gave me that last shift. And I had tears in my eyes talking to him. And Pat, who's not a man of much emotion, you know, gave me a hug too. And he says, Kenny, you don't know how tough it was for me to scratch you. I know what you meant to this team. I know what you meant to the organization, but I had a job to do. And I said, I understand that, Pat. And and I said, all that doesn't matter now. I'm grateful and indebted to you. And thank you so much uh, for putting me back in. And what he said to me, he says, Kenny, he says, I knew. He talked to Scott Stevens on the plane ride. And he sat down next to him and said, uh, Scotty, uh, I'm thinking of putting Daniel back in. What do you think? You know, because it's about winning. This is a tough decision because you got to make sure, because I thought it was the wrong decision at, at first look. And Scotty said, absolutely. He says he knew right away. Pat said, my reason was we needed that intangible. We needed that whatever it took in game seven, the fans, the reaction, the emotion that you're back in the lineup, because we know what you've meant to them and to the organization and what, they meant to me. And that was the intangible. He said, it didn't matter. I was getting in. I just wanted to affirm it was Scotty Stevens, the captain. And thank God Scotty didn't go, oh, I don't know, Pat. Because <laughs> 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 he could have. And maybe Pat would have thought about it. But uh, from what I heard, I've never asked Scotty about it. What I heard, uh, uh, and I know I went on long here, but I, there's only one way to tell the story. And uh, and I had to explain it. And Pat uh and, uh, you know, he had told uh, assured Pat, put him back in. Absolutely. He will be, he will give us a little boost. Uh, the dressing room will be pumped. The the building will be stoked. So that's his, that's the story. And the rest is history. And uh, uh, what a feeling. And, and like I said, I could care less what Pat and me went through. I'm so grateful to him. And I love the man now. And God rest his soul. Even if he didn't put me in, I would have loved the man because we would have won as long as we won. But, yeah, it made it a little extra special. Well, glad you gave us the full version of that story. That is an amazing, amazing story and a storybook ending to an amazing career. And I'm so glad that you took time out to speak to us because these are just fantastic, fantastic stories. You have a ton of fans out there, as you said, a real connection with the fans. And so you can follow Ken on Twitter at Ken Danico MSG. Of course, you can watch him on Devil's Broadcast and 
He's on Cameo as well, and so he's very accessible to the fans, and I think that's the way the Devils fans really appreciate you so much from over the years. And Ken Danico is Mr. Devil. Ken, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing it. This was great. Well, thank you very much for having me. Sorry if I went on a little long, but... Not at all. As anybody know, anybody that knows me, I can't tell a short story. <laughs> you need another three hours to waste the stories throughout my career. But I will end it with, I'm saying, great being on with you. And like I said, it's all about those 200-plus teammates I played with through my 20-year career and the support I got from the fans. That's what meant everything to me. That's... That's what it's all about as far as being a pro athlete and being part of one team for so long. I was grateful for, but those teammates and the things you go through with the ups and downs and, and in-betweens. And and again, I thank Scotty Stevens for not questioning Pat Burns. His answer right away was absolutely. <laughs> Thanks to Ken Danico for an awesome conversation. Guy's got stories for days. I love that. And I love the detail he went into about that final game, that final shift. Imagine wrapping up your hockey career, playing for only one team, being nicknamed for that team, Mr. Devil, winning three Stanley Cups, and your final game, your final shift is game seven of the Stanley Cup in which you win it and you're worried, I hope I don't blow it. What a wild end to a great career, and I just I love that story because it's so unique. Who else could possibly say that's how it ended? Kind of storybook in many ways, and yet other ways, torturous for Ken, but very honest, and I really appreciated that conversation. That was really good stuff. If you're a hockey fan and you enjoy some deeper conversations about teams and players and executives you might enjoy neil smith the gm of the rangers when they won the stanley cup in 94 and he took us behind the scenes of building that team and the controversies that he had with mike keenan and the battles he had with mike keenan and the ups and downs of the front office with the ownership and trading or allowing mark messier to leave and then signing wayne gretzky it just it had it all so check that out that was a couple of months ago and you can find that along the same podcast feed. Hey, just want to go back to last week's conversation with Curtis Granderson. And this is from the YouTube comment section under the Grandy video. You can check all of our New York accent videos out on the WFAN YouTube channel. So if you have any comments there, questions there, you can always leave them. And we read through them every week as well. And I mentioned on the podcast last week just how popular Granderson is amongst both the Yankee fans, Mets fans and even Dodgers and Tigers fans as well where he also played but Carla mentioned he's always been such a class act let's go Mets also this is another comment underneath the video thank you Granderson all the love we love you let's go Mets Cardi G says Grandy man great to see him on here talking Mets let's go Mets Bash Ben says education 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 what a wonderful man both of his parents were teachers in education, and he said that was the root, that was the grounding that he had that he was raised with and kind of led him to become such an articulate guy, a thoughtful guy, and a great guy. And Brandon writes in, he is the future commissioner. And boy, that does feel like a great role for him. He he seems to take great 
great pleasure in trying to do what's right by as many people as possible. And I think putting it the league in the hands of Granderson as the commissioner would be much better than Rob Manfred, would it not? Granderson always seems to know what to say and be respectful of of the fans or the people in front of him asking questions. And I love that idea. I love allowing a guy like that with that type of personality to, to lead the way because, you know, Manfred has been so tone deaf in so many instances and seemingly kind of uncaring about maybe some concerns that people have, like about the cheating scandal with the Astros or more recently the A's and moving to Las Vegas. And I think Granderson is the exact opposite. So I love that call by Brandon on the YouTube comments. Future Commissioner Curtis Granderson. You can email us, nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. On Twitter, at DA on CBS. On Instagram, at Damon Amendo. My DMs are open, or as I said, under the YouTube videos. You can leave comments there as well. Well, you can find this on the podcast feed, just search New York Accent. Subscribe, rate, and review. That helps other people find it. Or as I said on the WFAN YouTube channel. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman. Also, thanks to the Odyssey podcast team. You can usually catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio or weekends. Normally a Saturday shift unless there's a Yankee game on WFN in New York. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday. New York Accent is an original Odyssey podcast.